walks down the street, he says, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot of redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, dogs in the moonlight. Far away, my well-lit door. Mr. Beer Belly, Beer Belly, get these mutts away from me. Hello, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 188 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is a 2021 Sanctions Enforcement Review. Hello, everyone. Hope you're doing well, uh, staying safe and healthy, getting the vaccine, uh, as we hopefully are moving back to some kind of normalcy. Um, before we get started today, let's hear from our sponsor, Steel Compliance. Steel Compliance is the global leader in compliance and ethics management. Steel's compliance and ethics platform is comprehensive, robust, and easy to use to promote a company's culture of compliance. Steel partners with the world's largest, most respected companies to deliver compliance products and services that help organizations embrace a culture of compliance while protecting their brand. Building an ethical culture is a complex undertaking that requires a detailed understanding of the global compliance environment considerable time, and specialized expertise. Steel's end-to-end ethics and compliance platform is designed to provide compliance officers with the solutions they need to proactively address changing regulatory and reputational risks. Steel's ethics and compliance automated platform offers critical functions designed to promote a speak-up culture to advance employee engagement, reporting, and incident management, Investigate promptly and fairly potential incidents to ensure compliance with your organization's code of conduct and applicable laws and regulations, including anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, antitrust, sanctions, cybersecurity, and data privacy. Manage your organization's compliance policies and procedures to ensure that policies are updated and disseminated effectively so that employees understand your organization's compliance requirements. Educate and engage your organization to promote understanding in how your compliance program applies to -to day-to-day operations. And evaluate and monitor your organization's business partners, vendors, suppliers, and customers to mitigate risk and ensure adherence to your organization's ethics and compliance requirements. To learn more about Steel's compliance solutions, please contact us at email steelglobal.com or call 415-692-5000. Well, I thought we'd do a uh, check-in with uh, OFAC and sanctions uh, enforcement. Um, We've seen sort of little let-up in uh, OFAC uh, enforcement. Uh, I think it's going to be an interesting uh, year because we have the new Biden administration obviously taking over, and companies have to expect aggressive enforcement of trade sanctions. Uh, At the same time, in response to Russian aggression and the solar wind cyber attack, OFAC is likely to implement new and even more restrictive sanctions against Russia, uh, and we'll be watching for that. Uh, In anticipation, companies, again, should elevate the importance of their sanctions compliance programs uh, pursuant to the May 2019 OFAC framework. Uh, Unfortunately, what we're seeing is many companies... uh, are not attending uh, as much as they should to sanctions compliance and especially the annual training requirement. Uh, OFAC uh, mandated that there is annual uh, OFAC compliance training. 
Uh, and obviously, uh, if you ignore the sanctions risks, uh, you're operating in peril. And uh, there's just a much more aggressive attitude towards uh, sanctions enforcement with the Department of Justice uh, beginning to sort of get more involved, particularly in the North Korea sanctions or Iranian sanctions cases. Okay, so let's take a look at what's happened so far this year. To start off the year, we had the first enforcement action was against a French bank, Union des Banques Arabes, Arabe des Français. Well, I'll call it uh, the Union Bank, the French bank. Uh, and basically, it, w- it facilitated trade finance between Europe, the Middle East, uh, or among Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, and Asia. And they agreed to an $8 million, $8.5 million settlement for 127 violations of the Syria-related sanctions. Between August 2011 and August and April 2013, uh, Union Bank uh, maintained U.S. dollar accounts for sanctioned Syrian banks and then indirectly assisted in conducting U.S. dollar business transactions for these sanctions banks. Most of the violations involve processing of internal transfers for Syrian entities that included correspondent bank transfers through a U.S. bank. And this is the hook in which OFAC gets involved, is usually their dollar accounts and their correspondent banking relationships with the U.S. bank. Uh, And then the remaining violations were either back-to-back letter of credit transactions or trade finance transactions involving sanctioned parties, again, which were processed through a U.S. bank. So in total, uh, UB uh, processed approximately $2.1 billion in prohibited U.S. dollar transactions. In some of these cases, UB processed a U.S. dollar transfer between two of its clients, one sanctioned Syrian entity and one non-sanctioned client, on its own books. And then they processed the U.S. dollar transactions uh, on behalf of the non-sanctioned client through a U.S. bank. So the U.S. banks weren't aware of the connection of the uh, sanctioned Syrian entity. Uh, Also, they did foreign exchange transactions with a sanctioned Syrian customer on its books, uh, debiting an account in one currency and then crediting the same sanctioned customer's account in another currency. So uh, the actions, uh, obviously, UB's actions demonstrated knowledge of OFAC sanctions laws but it incorrectly concluded that avoiding direct U.S. dollar clearing on behalf of the sanctions parties was sufficient, not recognizing that having a sanctioned entity in some part of the transaction made the entire transaction uh, illegal and prohibited. And uh, OFAC concluded that they had recklessly uh, failed to exercise any minimal degree of caution or care in addressing the risks. Uh, UB voluntarily disclosed the conduct to OFAC, and they had a compliance program during uh, the time of the violations, but since then has uh, enhanced its compliance program by uh, adopting a new financial security charter um, and creating a new senior management compliance committee. Uh, Interesting case, uh, again, showing U.S. dollar transactions involving correspondent banking relationships And any aspect of the transaction that comes through is going to be uh, troublesome in that regard. Okay, so let's go to uh, 
the second case, which was another interesting case because we saw the Justice Department appear again. And why? Because uh, it was a violation of the North Korea sanctions program. So DOJ and OFAC settled with an Indonesian company for $2.5 million. Uh, and the, the, country, the company was uh, BT Bukit Muraya Jaya, BMJ we'll call them, global supplier of cigarette paper. And, and it's what's weird is all these North Korean uh, sanctions cases involve transactions or, or goods related to cigarettes, be it filters, be it paper, Anyways, a global supplier of cigarette paper based in Indonesia p- agreed to pay uh, $1.5 million for a conspiracy to commit bank fraud as part of a scheme to deceive uh, various banks in order to collect payments for cigarette paper exports to North Korea. So uh, they entered into an 18-month deferred prosecution agreement with the Justice Department Also, uh, BMJ agreed to implement a compliance program to prevent and detect violations of the sanctions laws. Um, And they also entered into a $1.016 million settlement with OFAC, so that's where we get to the $2.5 million, for 28 apparent violations of the North Korea sanctions program. So BMJ admitted it sold products to two North Korean companies as well as a Chinese trading company, knowing that the products were destined for North Korea. Specifically, they exported the cigarette paper to a Chinese-based intermediary who procured the cigarette paper on behalf of the OFAC-designated Korea Daisong General Trading Company, uh, Daisong, while Daisong was uh, operating under an alias. In addition, uh, BMJ sold cigarette paper to Dalian Sun Moon Star International Logistics Company, which was subsequently designated by OFAC in August of 2018. Uh, BMJ, at the request of its customers, replaced the ultimate customer from paperwork, invoices, packing lists, bills of lading, to reference only the names of intermediaries located in third countries, and the transactions uh, totaled nearly $1 million. And BMJ directed payments uh, for the exports uh, to its U.S. dollar bank account at a non-U.S. bank. Uh, Here we go again. This is the hook. 28 wire transfers related to such exports were cleared through U.S. banks between March 2016 and May 2018. Uh, Correspondent banks in the U.S. are prohibited from processing wire transfers for customers in North Korea. After uh, BMJ learned that uh, its North Korean customers were having difficulty getting the payments uh, to BMJ, BMJ arranged the payments by using Chinese front companies and other third-party payers to disguise the source of funds from North Korea. Uh, The U.S. banks failed to conduct any due diligence on any of the transactions involving the correspondent bank accounts, and that may be the subject of a future enforcement action for some of these banks, or who knows, they probably voluntarily disclose. BMJ uh, accepted these third-party payments knowing that they were intended to evade sanctions, monitoring, and compliance systems, and eventually BMJ seized seized all business with North Korea, adopted a sanctions policy and compliance procedures. Uh, BMJ did not voluntarily disclose the conduct to OFAC, and that makes me think that it was the banks who disclosed it, and therefore BMJ 
uh, got in trouble. So let's go to the next case. The next case was an interesting case because it involved, again, cryptocurrency and uh, digital currency companies. This is, I think, the second case that we've had focusing on a uh, digital currency company. And uh, BitPay agreed to pay $507,375 to settle OFAC sanctions violations. This is uh, yet another warning sign to uh, those engaged, particularly as exchanges, uh, as to the impact that OFAC sanctions can have. Here, OFAC's, OFAC, uh, and it's likely to, by the way, con- to continue to focus on digital currency companies. The, uh, the head of the Treasury, Janet Yellen, uh, uh, has criticized digital currencies and, and questioned the utility of this rapidly growing uh, new technology. So BitPay, which is a private company based in Atlanta, Georgia, provides payment processing for merchants to accept digital currency as payment for goods and services. Uh, And they engaged in 2,102 violations of sanctions programs in the Crimea region of the Ukraine, Cuba, North Korea, Iran, Sudan, and Syria, uh, almost like a murderer's row. In particular, uh, BitPay processed transactions for customers with merchants in the United States and elsewhere using the the digital currency on BitPay's platform, even though BitPay had location information, including internet protocol addresses and other location data about those persons prior to completing the transactions. So in other words, they had no way to block, I mean, they had a way to block the transactions, knowing that the IP address, let's say, came from a prohibited country, but they chose to not do so. So they processed approximately $129,000 worth of digital currency transactions with merchant customers, uh, and they uh, and in these uh, they also received digital currency payments from its merchant customers on behalf of the merchant's buyers who were located in sanctioned jurisdictions. They converted the digital currency to fiat currency, and then BitPay relayed the currency to its merchants. So between uh, June of 2013 and September of 2018, uh, they processed 2,100 transactions on behalf behalf of individuals who, based on IP addresses, information available, and invoices were located in sanctioned uh, jurisdictions. Now, what's interesting is BitPay screened its merchant customers against OFAC's SDN list and conducted uh, due diligence on them to ensure that they were not located in sanctioned jurisdictions. However, BitPay failed to screen location data that it obtained about its merchants' buyers to confirm the location and screen the customers against OFAC's SDN list. So they were in compliance with regard to the, the uh, merchants, uh, but not in regard to uh, the merchants' uh, uh, buyers uh, in this sense. So interesting. Uh, and they also at times had received information about merchants' buyers, including a name, address, email address, and phone number. In uh, starting in November 2017, they also got the buyer's IP address, but their transaction review process failed to review and analyze any of the identification and location uh, data. Interestingly, BitPay did not voluntarily disclose the sanctions violations, 
Uh, and to, to me, that's kind of uh, interesting as to how they determined. Again, it may be through some of the uh, buyers' accounts that they learned about it or banks. Um, so they implemented uh, compliance controls. They've been trained uh, to remediate, and not only uh, they also have blocked IP addresses that originate in any of these countries, uh, and they do check now physical and email addresses of the buyers uh, to prevent completion of an invoice where there's a sanctioned uh, jurisdiction address. So um, this just underscored, again, the need for digital currency companies uh, to um, uh, create and implement uh, risk-based sanctions compliance controls. Uh, as stated by OFAC uh, at the end of this enforcement action, they said companies that facilitate or engage in online commerce or process transactions using digital currency are responsible for ensuring that they do not engage in unauthorized transactions prohibited by OFAC sanctions, such as dealings with blocked persons or property, or engaging in prohibited trade or investment-related transactions. Okay, the last two cases, which are pretty interesting, uh, because it shows the stretch of OFAC enforcement actions and their jurisdiction, uh, the first uh, of the the first case was against Unicontrol, which agreed to pay two hundred and sixteen thousand four hundred sixty four dollars to settle ca the case for violations of OFAC's Iran sanctions program. Now they're a manufacturer of process controls, air pre airflow pressure switches in Cleveland, um, and uh, they exported nineteen shipments of its goods to two European countries with reason to know that the goods were intended for delivery to Iran end users. Now, this is always a common uh, scenario, which I'm very concerned about for companies that rely on distributors. In other words, you can have a distributor in a permitted jurisdiction, but the distributor, in fact, resells your product uh, to a prohibited country like Iran. Um, so uh, Unicontrol Uni exported 19 shipments where they had reason to know, that's the standard, but they also exported two shipments with actual knowledge that the products were intended for Iranian customers. Uh, Unicontrol uh, voluntarily disclosed the violations uh, in over a four-year period. Like I said, they, they uh, exported 21 shipments of air pressure switches uh, to two European countries, who uh, companies who in turn um, uh, redistributed the products to Iranian customers. Now, what's interesting is the OFAC settlement provided specific information on the red flags that should have stopped, that met the reason to know standard. Uh, and these are good ones to sort of keep on your list in uh, OFAC compliance as to the types of facts that they look for when they're trying to see whether or not a company had reason to know that its product was going to end up in a prohibited country. Let's go through those. There, first off, one of the uh, customer interest in the Iranian market. So one of the European customers, companies, told Unicontrol in May of 2010 that it had a significant market for goods in Iran. And Unicontrol originally rejected the offer to supply the European company because of this. But Unicontrol never 
took any steps to confirm that the European company was not re-exporting its products to Iran. Unicontrol and a European trade partner uh, and, uh, entered into a sales representative agreement in February 2014, and the agreement explicitly listed Iran as a country to which the European company could resell Unicontrol goods. So they never sought to update or clarify the agreement to state that re-exports to Iran were prohibited. When one of the European companies informed Unicontrol of a delay in re-exportation to the end user, Unicontrol offered to ship the goods directly uh, to the end user, and the European company rebuffed the offer, and Unicontrol did not question or follow up on this issue. So they, they were concerned... OFAC is looking at the obfuscation of the end user in this, pro in this process. Then you, there were meetings with Iranians at trade shows. Unicontrol management attended European trade shows and met with Iranian customers at a European company's trade partner's booth. Even after this meeting, Unicontrol never questioned its trade partner about the Iran interest uh, in its products. And at a subsequent trade conference, Unicontrol met directly with potential Iranian customers. Finally, there was the removal of the Made in USA label. Unicontrol's European trade partner requested a February, in a February 23, 2017 email that Unicontrol remove its Made in the USA label from the switches that it planned to export to the partner. The trade partner explained that the Iranian end user may object to the stated origin of the products. Unicontrol sought guidance from the outside council concerning the proposed transactions, but still went ahead and completed the shipments. So the outside council then, uh, assisting Unicontrol, uh, created the voluntary disclosure of the violations and acknowledged that Unicontrol had actual knowledge in the violations from the final two shipment, shipments involving uh, the request to take off the Made in USA label. So uh, actually what's interesting is also that Unicontrol, uh, pursuant to outside counsel's um, request uh, or direction, requested that its trade partners return the last shipment. One European trade partner returned the goods and was reimbursed, while the other ignored Unicontrol's request and re-exported the goods it received to Iran. Unicontrol forfeited the payment of 66000 dollars and not dollars for the shipment that was ultimately made to Iran and they ceased all shipments uh, to uh, the European trade partners at the time of its voluntarily disclosure. Uh, so Unicontrol strengthened its sanctions compliance and export policies and procedures. It required customers from then on to sign end user and end use certificates to ensure that buyers do not resell Unicontrol products to prohibited end users. For re-exports, Unicontrol requires end user certificates uh, from secondary and tertiary buyers of re-exported products. Finally, Unicontrol added a destination control statement to the footer of certain trade documents, including sales order, accounting forms, order acknowledgments, and invoices to remind recipients of the restrictions on reselling, transferring, manipulating, or otherwise disposing of their products. So we had the Unicontrol uh, situation, and then all of a sudden, uh, 
OFAC announced a settlement with Nordgas, uh, and uh, Nordgas was involved in these unit controls violations of the uh, Iran sanctions program. Uh, Nordgas is an Italian company, and it's one of the two European companies that was involved. And over a four-year period, Nordgas re-exported 27 shipments of air pressure switches from Unicontrols uh, that was intended for 10 customers in Iran, thereby causing uh, Unicontrol to indirectly export uh, goods to Iran. Nordgas obfuscated the re-exportation and Iranian customers from the U.S. company. Um, so interestingly, they went to the European um, uh, company that was involved, Nordgas, and uh, I think because of the obfuscation and the obstruction and the uh, nature of the behavior, uh, they, they wanted to uh, prosecute this company as well. And uh, I think it was because of the sort of blatant nature of uh, the, fa the facts that were involved. So uh, the U.S. company, this Nordgas, for example, uh, was the company that uh, ultimately did not return uh, the products when requested pursuant to outside counsel's direction. So now Nordgas uh, sought to pressure sought to purchase these air pressure switches in late 2012 from uh, Unicontrol, and this time Nordgas misrepresented its intent and claimed that it was selling to a Nordgas affiliate. In fact, Nordgas planned to sell to customers in Iran. Nordgas's employees used replacement terms and correspondence and trade documentation to disguise the customer's location in Iran. For several years, Nordgas used false terms to disguise the Iran customer. And, Nor and I think it's the blatant nature of all of this that was disclosed by Unicontrol in the original case that caused uh, DOJ to go, I mean, the uh, OFAC to go after uh, Nordgas. They took further steps to conceal the Iran customer. In one instance, uh, they were Nordgas. Uh, offered uh, sh to ship directly to Nor I mean, Unicontrol offered to ship directly to Nordgas's affiliate, the supposed customer, and Nordgas declined the offer. In another, uh, Nordgas employees were the ones who requested that the company Unicontrol remove the made in the U.S. Uh, label. So, uh, um, in the end here, OFAC reduced the penalty because of uh, some Nordgas's financial circumstances and ended up with an amount of 350000 uh, although I think they probably would have gotten a million-dollar uh, fine otherwise. Uh, Nordgas uh, agreed to implement a sanctions compliance program and enhanced compliance commitments and included uh, submission of an annual report to OFAC each year for the next five years, describing how Nordgas is meeting its compliance program commitments. So this is an, an important, interesting example of the reach of OFAC's jurisdiction extending to foreign companies to non-U.S. persons for foreign trading activities involving U.S. origin goods. That's the hook that they had. These were manufactured in the United States, sold by Unicontrol, and therefore had U.S. origin goods and therefore gave them the jurisdiction over Nordgas because Nordgas had no presence in the United States. 
So foreign companies cannot disguise or conceal the involvement of a sanctioned country or person in a transaction by falsifying the names of end users or otherwise hiding the end users uh, that are involved. Uh, and in foreign transactions involving U.S. origin goods, foreign companies have to ensure compliance with OFAC regulations. So this was a real stretch of OFAC's jurisdiction to get to a foreign company, and they use the hook, obviously, of the U.S. origin product uh, and obviously the interactions, which gave them sufficient jurisdiction. Uh, but a very interesting case in terms of a precedent that is set about uh, the jurisdiction of OFAC to go after foreign companies. Well, that's about it for today. Uh, and uh, keep up with OFAC. I think we're going to see some more interesting actions this year, uh, in particularly when the uh, Russia sanctions get tightened up. And we're going to see more sanctions uh, with disputes. Obviously, the reinstitution of sanctions is going to occur with regard to Myanmar as that situation uh, is still in a difficult uh, flux there in terms of uh, the military coup. Anyways, uh, thanks, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch. And we'll see you at the next episode. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkov Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. You can learn more about the legal and compliance services we offer at our website, www.volkovlaw.com. You can also follow our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact Michael Volkov at his email address, mvolkov at volkovlaw.com. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. I can call you Betty, and Betty, when you call me, you can call me out. Call me Hallelujah, if you'll be my bodyguard, I can be